Um, if you would, go ahead and open your Bible up to John chapter 9. We are continuing on in 9, looking from verses uh, 24 through 34. I'm going to read the passage and we'll, we'll get right into it. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner or not, or whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. So uh, Phil had asked me to, to speak um, a little over, probably a month ago or something, something even longer, and then it was recommended that I continue on preaching through the book of John. Um, and uh, which, again, thank you, Phil. I'm very honored to do that, to continue on in, in the narrative. And, uh, but I begin working out my outline for the sermon. And uh, last week I told Phil, I said, I will never do that again. I'm going to wait until I hear you preach first, the text before, and then work on it. Because as I was sitting there last week, I was saying, oh, I was going to hit on that. I was going to hit on that, too. That was going to be my... Okay, well, there goes my whole sermon. I sent him a little text message, a little gif, gif, or whatever, of someone throwing papers, and I said, what you did in my sermon uh, today. <clears throat> but I'm actually very, very thankful of God because it allowed me to um, dig deeper into the text and... Uh, a text that I was looking at and I was having a hard time with because I was looking at it and saying, this text is very just pretty straightforward. Uh, there's not a whole lot of hidden meanings or anything like that. There's nothing, you know, uh, it's pretty straightforward text. And I, I don't know how I'm going to, to um, you know, bring more out of it than what I already had planned, which was preached the week before. So, uh, but uh, praise God for his grace. He, he, this text, I love this text. It's just jam-packed with so much. And um, Lord willing, we'll get through that today. Um, <clears throat> now, we are still uh, dealing with the healed blind man before the Pharisees and religious leaders. We're still looking at the, the healing and the accusations of the religious leaders. And, and um, so, you know, the context in which we are looking is the same, and that's why a lot of my outline looked a lot like what Phil was talking about last week because we have, again, you know, when we talked about last week, the, the basically interrogation of the religious leaders on this blind man, 
and then you know they, they sent him off they, they talked to his neighbors you know people that knew him his parents and then um, bring him back in and they pretty much just ask the same questions and and are reinterrogating him all over again so the context is very similar from what we looked at last week um, and I just you know, quick recapping here um, Jesus had healed a man born blind on the Sabbath, the day of rest. Um, and so fitting that we are, the subject of the month is rest. And uh, the, exactly the, what uh, Phil talked about earlier, this, the Sabbath is what we're dealing with here. Um, the Pharisees and religious leaders have made so many man-made laws and, and traditions that they added to God's law that you really couldn't do much on the Sabbath. <clears throat> uh, there were, Pharisees had 39 different classes or articles or, or categories, if you will. Um, that wasn't 39 different things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. There was 39 different categories full of individual things in which you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Uh, and, and within those articles, just all this, uh, and, and a category on healing, now, you could keep someone from dying on the Sabbath, but that's as far as you could go. You could keep someone, if someone was dying, you could prevent them from death, but it, you couldn't improve their health. You couldn't make them better if it was on the Sabbath. You just had to hope that they pulled through to the next day. And uh, so it was really, and this is all man-made um, religious leaders adding on to the law of God. Um, and as Phil talked about, and as we've seen in our study, John, they had some crazy man-made laws. And you, you couldn't walk out and, and pick a piece of fruit off a tree, uh, a weed. You couldn't, um, if someone fell in the ditch, you couldn't help them out until if it was on the Sabbath because that would be considered work. If you had sandals with nails in them, that was uh, meaning that you were carrying a, an uh, unnecessary burden and therefore it was work. Um, and therefore you would be breaking the Sabbath wearing those types of sandals. Um, so it just it got crazy, uh, and they added so much to the Word of God um, that really the day of rest probably became, for the first century Jew, nothing more than a burden. Um, as I stated before, there were 39 different articles or categories of things that, that fell under what constituted as work. And again, a, a first century Jew at this time had to contemplate Cautiously, just everything that they did, make sure. Okay, uh, can I can I pick up that? You know, can I pick up my sandal that I just accidentally flew off my foot? Can I can I help someone? Uh, can I hand someone this this piece of paper? I mean, it was crazy, and so it was became kind of oxymoron what what the religious leaders had done. We want you to set this day apart and and uh, be focused on Yahweh uh, as He's commanded. Um, but oh, don't do that! Don't do this! Can't do that. And, and so it became the religious leaders that added so much um, to God's word that, that it had become a burden. And if anything, the, the Sabbath was, was probably anything but a day of rest uh, because of all the things you had to keep in mind uh, of things that you could not do. And, uh, and we're probably the most stressed out day of the week, to be honest. <clears throat> and it was such a contradiction to what the intentions of of God's law were. And, you know, we may laugh and shake our heads at this, but uh, I started thinking about it. The, the church has a great parallel to this today when it comes to 
uh, our salvation. Catholic churches and, and even modern day Protestant churches have no problem saying your salvation is a work of a cross. It is entirely the work of a cross. It is a free gift by grace through faith. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do for it. It is a free gift, your salvation. But once you have it, oh, then you've got to work for it. You've got to keep it. And if you lose it, guess what you've got to do? You've got to work to get it back. What an oxymoronic, I don't know if that's a word, but oxymoronic a contradiction that I, I feel blows the, this whole Sabbath thing out of the water. You know, we, we add our, our, our own man-made traditions on things and, and completely um, ruin the true meaning of, of God's intentions. And I'm going to get more into that here in the, in the first verse. So, um, again, just recapping, last week saw that there was division among the religious leaders. Why was there division? Because some of them could not uh, understand, though they figured that Jesus was a sinner because he was breaking all these man-made traditions, yet he was performing signs and miracles that they couldn't understand. We remember um, uh, Nicodemus coming to, to Jesus, saying, we know you're from God. Uh, no one can perform these things if they were not from God. Uh, but yet there was this struggle because they had these man-made traditions and laws. <clears throat> uh, so Jesus heals this blind man on the Sabbath the next day, or a couple of days later, um, because obviously the Jewish leaders would not meet on the Sabbath the day that Jesus healed because that would have been work. Um, so therefore, this is probably the next day or a couple of days later as the news spread about his healing. Um, they brought his neighbors in and his parents and, and are asking them, is this your son? Is this the man born blind? Um, they say, yes, this is our son. He's born blind. Uh, but how? We don't know. Ask him. And that's where our text begins. Uh, verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, for we know that this man is a sinner. Again, we see their attempt to, to break this man, and, and we wonder why, looking at the text, you just see the, the constant just beating up of this man, of, of, of giving an account of, of what happened. And the reason why is because if they knew, if they could show somehow that this wasn't really a miracle, or maybe this man was in cahoots with Jesus, and, and he said, I'll, I'll pretend to be blind, even though I've been out here blind beggar for 15, 16, 17, 18 years, however long, um, if they could prove that, they, that what took place wasn't really a miracle and uh, that this man was lying for Jesus to, to make him look good, then everything that they've been accusing Jesus of would be proven true, that he was a false messiah, he was a false teacher leading people astray. Notice the phrase there, give glory to God. Uh, this is a direct quote from uh, Joshua 7, verse 19. Um, if you remember the book of Joshua where uh, the Israelites march around the walls of Jericho for seven days and, and the walls fall and, and God's direction to the Israelites is, is once you go in there and you defeat um, you know, and take over the, this land, you are to take all the devoted things, which were idolat idolatrous items and things like that, um, you are to devote them to destruction. You're not to keep them. Uh, you're not to plunder them. You are to devote all the idolatry, knowing how Israel was prone to idolatry. Um, God demands that they destroy all the devoted things. A man named Achan 
ends up stealing, um, I don't know what it was, some, something that was, you know, uh, of idolatry, something that was a devoted thing, uh, that was worth money, stole it, um, kept it for himself, and then Israel's defeated by a weaker uh, nation uh, following that. And God reveals to Joshua, Joshua approaches Achan, in verse 19 he says, My son, give glory to God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. The Pharisees here are basically saying, tell the truth. Give glory to God. Stop lying. Give glory to God. Tell the truth. <clears throat> we know that this man is a sinner. The Pharisees seem to want to get to the bottom of the issue, and they are inquiring for the truth. But we see here that their minds have already been made up. To them, Jesus was a sinner who had broken the law. Jesus, of course, did not break the law. He broke their man-made laws and false ideologies, which he had exalted above the scriptures. And Jesus already proclaimed to the religious leaders in, in Matthew 12, 8, that, that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was made for man, not for God. But they are interrogating this poor man to tell the truth, but they don't want the truth. They want the truth that aligns with their belief system, which leads me to my first point. How reflective is this of our own culture? We want truth. But we want the truth that aligns with our belief system. Amen. That is based on our preconceived man-made notions and ideologies. And it affects the way we live our lives. It affects the way we evangelize. It affects the way we proclaim the gospel. It clouds us from the truth. I remember when I was working at Applebee's, I uh, was standing there at the terminal and there was a, a very, what you would call a traditional Bible thumper uh, lady. And um, one of the hostess walked in and, and I heard her say, oh no. And I looked, I said, what? She said, look what she did. And I looked and the, the young girl had uh, purple streaks in her hair. And I said, oh, she, oh, she dyed her hair. She's like. Now she's going to go to hell. And I was shocked. And I said, Bob, you're not serious, are you? And she looked at me and she says, absolutely. There is no saving that girl now that she's dyed her hair and done something crazy like that. She had deemed this young girl unworthy to even proclaim the gospel to because of the color of her hair. But we are guilty of this as well, our, our culture. I, uh, I don't like the doctrine of hell. Therefore, I will find a church that teaches that hell is really not a, a place of eternal, God's eternal wrath. I don't like, my God's not like that. My God's a loving, compassionate God that would never do that, despite what the scriptures clearly teach. So I will, will go to a church that has redefined what hell means. Or if I go to a church and they mention hell in a way that I disagree with and that, that confronts my, my man-made ideologies and notions, then I will simply just leave it. I don't, I don't like the fact, and, and I, can't, I can't comprehend a God who doesn't allow people to love whoever they want to love. Despite what the scriptures clearly teach. 
So therefore, I will find a church that proclaims that God is accepting of all these things. And if I hear of a church, or if I hear in a sermon that, that homosexuality is sin, then I will simply leave it. And just a little side note, that, that door kind of swings both ways. I, I've spoken with Christians, and you would think homosexuality, after speaking with them, was the unpardonable sin. I've sp- spoken with, with people who claim to be Christians who say, no, once someone, if someone struggles with that or have ever engaged in it, they, they're lost, man. There is no helping them. Kind of diminishing their own sin in their own life. And I don't want to offend anybody, but here it goes. Uh, <laughs> I don't like the fact, a doctrine of, of election or predestination. I don't like that God sovereignly ordains and chooses whom he saves, despite what the scriptures clearly teach. And if I, if I hear it, I'm out of there. I won't, I won't have any part of that. Not my God. Let me just take a side note. God will never fault you for giving him too much glory for your salvation. But let me tell you something. When we, are le- when we are led by our preconceived notions and false ideologies that do not line with Scripture, we exalt ourselves and our beliefs over the Word of God and God himself, just as the Pharisees do here. Let us examine our preconceived notions and ideologies in light of Scripture. And if they don't match up, get rid of them fast. Let Scripture be your authority and not your feelings. Verse 25, he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. The song we just heard was inspired by this text. We see here um, my second point, which is that is the power of a testimony. Now, before I go too, I, I, too far into this, I do want to uh, give a, a heat of warning because it seems that a lot of times in, our, in churches today, um, testimonies have, have kind of taken the center stage. And um, you'll have, you can go to a church service and you'll have 20 minutes given to song, 20 minutes given to somebody's testimony, and 5 to 10 minutes given to the word. And, and while, and I don't want to diminish the, the power of a testimony, as I'm stating here, it's my, it's my second point. Um, while I believe that testimonies are important and, and have their place and, and their, their time, it is the work of the Spirit through the power of the word that reveals God. It is, it is the word that authenticates, uh, authenticates, I can't even say the word, who God is. It is not your personal experience. And, and I say that in very lovingly because, you know, sometimes we put too much emphasis on experience that we had and say, okay, this proves that there's a God or this proves that, you know, this or that. Um, and while I am thankful for things such as um, God breaking someone of addiction or, or um, God healing a marriage or whatever it be, there is more than likely someone who has that same story who's a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness 
or an AA member. So again, I just want to do a, a heat of warning that um, as I believe that, uh, that our testimonies are important, um, they don't compare and reveal God as the work of the Spirit through the proclamation of his word does. And this is our primary source. Uh, but with that said, you, old Christian, you do have a testimony. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. What are we to t- test ourselves against? The world and our old self. Uh, and let me tell you something. If you're witnessing to somebody, it will not go very far if you don't have a life that reflects that which you're preaching. And maybe you're young and you've been raised in church and you feel like you don't have a testimony because you've never been delivered from uh, addiction or um, some type of dramatic story. You still have a testimony. You were once, in, uh, you were once dead, now you're alive. You were once an enemy of God, now you're a child of God. You still have a testimony. <clears throat> and this man, though, as we see, has a testimony that's unlike any other's. Because as we will see, this has never happened before. This has never taken place. So what he says is, and what he points to and brings back the religious leaders, the reason why they're there in the first place, his blindness being restored, or his sight being restored. Now this man doesn't say, religiously said, we know he's a sinner. I don't know who he is. I've never even seen the guy before. I can't tell you um, his backstory. I don't know where he was born. I don't know who his parents are. I've heard of him, but um, I, I can't tell you all these things. But what I can tell you is what I do know, and that was I was this, and now I'm that. Okay? I was blind, and now I see. And as we will see, he follows up his testimony with Scripture. And he's already professed that he believes that Jesus is from God, and he has given the reason as to why here. Because I was blind, and now I see. Like I said before, he has a testimony unlike anybody else, and he has been undeniably, supernaturally healed. He simply professes all that he knows. Notice that he doesn't go on to talk about the uh, incarnation, the doctrine of incarnation. He doesn't talk about the functional or ontological kenosis doctrine. He doesn't talk about the hypostatic union. He simply professes that which he does know. Uh, some of us think that because we're not knowledgeable enough, never maybe been in the church long enough, um, I'm no missionary. I'm no scholar, I'm no theologian, I'm no pastor. I, therefore, um, get a pass at evangelizing. I get a pass at, at professing my faith to others. There is no set time. Okay, you've been a Christian so many years, you're now ready. And we seem to, we seem to do this, we seem to think this. Well, that's the job of the pastor. You need someone to pray with you? Let me find someone. Pray with them. But I don't know the whole Bible back to front, front to back. This is where I believe a testimony does have its place. 
simply share that which you do know, what God has done in your life. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? The man's statement has obviously had an effect on these religious and Pharisees, religious leaders and Pharisees, because what did we see here? We see a change, right? A change in what they're asking. Just moments before, they said, we know you're lying. We know this man is a sinner. Tell the truth. And he says, I don't know what it's in. I don't know, but I was blind, and now I see. Fine. He, fine, he healed you. How did he go about doing it? Completely bypassing the miracle itself. Now, they are finally admitting that he, this man's sight has been restored. Finally uh, admitting that. We have these people who are testifying that this is, this is the guy. We brought his parents in who testify, this is our son. Um, he was born blind. How he sees, we don't know. And we have the man himself saying, yes, I'm the blind beggar, and I have been healed. I now see. So the, finally they admit, fine, you were healed. Then they ask, what did he do? How did he heal you? How did he open your eyes? Now, I don't know the exact reason of, of them asking this question yet again, because they already know how. He's been very detailed about what went about, what happened. But I, I believe the reason why they're asking this question again is because they're going back to the whole man-made traditional laws and notions uh, that they had made and added on to God's word. You see, not only was it against the law, their man-made laws, to heal someone on the Sabbath, but it was against their tradition to need anything. When I mean need, like dough, like when you sit there and knead it and punch it and all that. What, how did Jesus heal this man? He spit into dirt and kneaded it into mud and spread it over his eyes, which is what I, I mean, Jesus could have easily touched this man's eyes and restored his vision or just said, be healed, and, be, and he would have been healed. Um, we've seen Jesus doing that all, all over. Um, the centurion, you know, servant was, uh, was uh, healed just by Jesus saying he's, he's healed. We see the, the um, Roman uh, soldier's ear get put back to place just by Jesus touching it his ear back to his, his head, it's on there. But for some reason, Jesus does something unusual here, and he kneads mud together and puts it over his eyes and tells him to go wash. And then his, um, his eyes are restored. And this is just my opinion, um, but I believe the reason he did it was because it was kind of a little breaking another one of their laws that was not God's laws, it was man-made laws. So not only did Jesus break their man-made tradition of healing on the Sabbath, but he did it by kneading. <clears throat> and if, the, if, if these religious leaders and these Jews, and Jews at this time is just shows the, uh, is just another name for the hostile religious leaders or Pharisees, um, if they couldn't disprove the miracle, then they would put the focus back on breaking the breaking of their man-made tradition that Jesus broke. Not only had he healed someone on the Sabbath, but he did so by kneading clay, which was also forbidden. If they were going to have to admit that Jesus performed a miracle, then they would do so by emphasizing that he did it by means of sinning. 
They finally succumb to the evidence and fact that a great miracle has taken place, and they go straight back to their man-made laws. Forget that this has never taken place. They don't sit there and, and, and stand in awe and wonder and saying, so you can really see. Let's, let's take this in. Let's look at it. And some of the, some of the religious leaders were. They were having a hard time with it. They said, this is a miracle. Okay, we can't deny this. But these other, the, the hostile religious leaders are like, fine, 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 whatever. Okay, he, he, he healed you. He restored your sight. No big deal, whatever. Back to how he did it. Listen to this, guys. What did he do? Oh, he needed? Need I say more? Verse 27. He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciple? The Pharisees have, uh, like I said before, completely by- bypassed the miracle itself and go straight to, the, to accuse Jesus of breaking the law through their, um, this man's testimony. Annoyed, this man tells them that nothing has changed. There is, there is no further details that he can give them, nothing more they can learn about what took place. He has told them everything. And he says to them, you would not listen to me before. Nothing's going to change now. Which leads me to my next point. Unbelief is, always has been, and always will be an issue of the heart, not the head. When I was uh, 18 years old, I was introduced into the world of apologetics, and I fell in love with it. And uh, for those of you who don't know what apologetics is, it's just a, a means of defending your faith. So, you know, proving that, that there has to be a God, proving that Jesus did exist, proving the authority of Scripture um, through, through science, through history, through logic. Um, and I just, I loved it. But the reason I think I really fell in love with it in the beginning was because I felt that for the first time, if I were to be educated and knowledgeable enough in apologetics, I would be able to um, debate and argue people into the kingdom. I figured... If I can just show them that it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does a Christian, well, then that's that. If I can prove that there, there is existence for God, then that's that. If I can prove that, that Jesus was a historical figure that we can, we can look to, that should be that. If I can prove that this is the legitimate word of God proven through and through, then that should be that. That should be the end of the argument. I have yet been able to argue one person into heaven. Despite my many efforts, despite how passionate I get. Um, and that is not to say, and I don't want to dismiss apologetics. I still love apologetics. I still study it. And, um, and I, I, believe, I believe now it's more so for the believer than the unbeliever. Um, I've seen a lot of people being encouraged. We all struggle with doubt at times. Uh, but... You know, and, and, and now, usually when, I, when I'm talking with Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons that come to my door, um, you know, sometimes some of the first thing I say to them is, is let me ask you something. If I were, if I were able to, to show you beyond a reason of doubt that, that your faith it, it contradicts itself um, and that Jesus is one and the same with the Father and God, um, if I were to, beyond a doubt, prove that to you, would you at least... Would you at least think about it? Would you at least maybe um, start questioning your faith? And they say, absolutely not. 
no way, I would never, I would never. They said, would you? <laughs> yeah. If you could prove to me that I'm wasting my life serving a God of a false religion, yeah, I'd want to know. You won't be able to do it, but go for it. <laughs> They're like, yeah, he's got a hardened heart. Ah. But, I mean, I, and I speak to atheists, too, and I ask the same question. I was like, if, if I were able to, you know, show you and, and you know, give you all the evidence that you've ever wanted, would you, would you succumb to it? Would you become a Christian? Would you? No. I still just, I, I don't know. I just, no matter what you say, no matter what you prove to me, I still, I just can't believe it. Unbelief is always a heart issue, never a head, head issue. Um, and again, like I said, I don't want to dismiss, dismiss apologetics. I, I, every believer should uh, be able to give a reason for the faith and hope that is in us, First Peter 3.15. Um, but again, no matter what they heard or how many times they heard it, their minds had been made up, just as we saw in the very beginning of our text. We know that this man is a sinner. We're having a judge and jury kind of counsel here, but we've already made up the verdict. He is guilty. This once blind beggar calls them out on their hard-heartedness and stubbornness, and then he makes this little remark here at the end of the verse. The boldness of this blind beggar astonishes me. It is truly remarkable. Imagine you were on trial for treason, falsely accused, and and the uh, Supreme Court is, is continually questioning you and over and over and, and asking the same questions. And finally, you were to say, why do you keep asking me this? Do you yourself want to be a spy? Do you yourself want to commit treason? And you're wondering about how to go about it? And that's essentially what this man is doing. And, and what a great offense this was to the Pharisees. Um, again, the, the boldness of this blind beggar, this, this uneducated as they saw it, sinful, poor beggar. Who, may I remind you, I believe is in the process of regeneration, but I don't think he's there yet. I don't think he's, he's a believer yet. But he does believe of Jesus, believes that he is of God, um, said before that he believes he's a prophet. Verse 28, at this, And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The word revile here occurs only four times in the New Testament. This is the only time it occurs in the gospel accounts. And the verb means basically to reproach or, or to, out, um, to scold in an abusive manner. Uh, the word expresses that there are passionate outbursts um, of their anger, which was aroused by this man's question and statement. Uh, they began to get verbally kind of abusive here, saying, you're his disciple, which is fitting because yelling is the next best thing to being right. And to these Pharisees and religious leaders, it was, it was a scandalous thing to be called the disciple of Christ. It was a scandalous insult to these high, knowledgeable, official, religious leaders to be called a disciple of Jesus. 
In fact, if anyone were to admit, as we saw, uh, that Jesus was, was any more than a false prophet, that you, know, you could be excommunicated. They show their prideful loyalties to Moses, which was just another way of saying their loyalties to the law. Moses was a representation of the law, and, and they say, we are disciples of Moses, and we're dedicated to the law. And on a side note, if your religion puts a greater emphasis or, or anywhere close to equal emphasis on anyone other than Christ, you're on a false religion. Not knowing where Jesus was from is not to say they didn't know his whereabouts, where he, was, where he came from. Um, they already addressed that in chapter 7. Uh, they make the claim that they know that God has spoken through Moses. Why? Because they have evidence, which was the law. You say, we're not disciples of this man. We are disciples of Moses. Why? Because we know that God spoke to Moses. We know that God or Moses was, of, was from God. Because why? We have the law. We have uh, the Pentateuch, the Torah. And we have, that's how we know. We've, he's proven it to us that, that Moses is of God and we are his disciples because of that. But this man, what evidence do we have? What we don't know where he's from, if he's from God or not. To them, Jesus proved that he was not from God because he had broken the Sabbath or their man-made um, added religious rules and laws that was added on to God's word. What is ironic about this is that Moses himself declared to, his, to Israel and Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Uh, prophecy of Christ. Uh, these Pharisees and Sadducees were warned just a couple years prior by John the Baptist. He told you, I baptized you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So these religious leaders had been warned by, by their Moses, been warned by the prophets, and then just a couple years prior to this account, warned by John the Baptist himself of the coming Messiah. And John the Baptist says, he's here, it's, it's time. The axe is, is, is ready. He is here. So the Pharisees asked, to what proof can we look to that shows that this Jesus is from God and not a false teacher? Here we go from uh, verses 30 through 33, which is uh, the man's bold statement. Verse 30, and the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This healed blind man's boldness grows because I believe, I believe what he thought is when I tell them, bring it home to them and tell them, look, I was blind, now I see. That should be the end of it. That's the nail in the coffin. Why? Because of this, um, because of the belief system that they had back then, which is backed up by Scripture. In claiming that Jesus was indeed a sinner, 
and show no sign of being uh, from God, they heal blind men and says, what? What about this marvelous thing that just occurred? Like I said before, he believed that his statement that he was blind and now see was a nail in the coffin. He was making more than just saying, I was blind, but now I see. He was saying more than that. What he was alluding to, what he was showing was he was pointing to Christ. And he was pointing to Christ being more than just a man. He was pointing to Christ being of and from God when he said, listen, I don't know what you know. I don't know this. this. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. Basically saying, therefore, we can conclude and they say, we're disciples of Moses. What evidence does this man give? Completely, again, bypassing the miracle itself. The man uh, brings it back and talks about his blindness and his vision being restored. And the point of this man's previous statement was, again, to point to Christ. Maybe not as the Messiah, as we'll see coming. He wasn't fully there yet. But he didn't know that he was of God. He was from God um, he couldn't explain it other than he has to be of and from God. <clears throat> uh, piggybacking on what Phil said last week, if your testimony does not point to and give glory to Christ, then you should probably get rid of it. And, and this is exactly what this man does. He says, listen, I was this and this because of Christ, because of who he is. <clears throat> this man baffled Re, re, uh, reiterates again that his eyes had been miraculously opened and yet they were still unsure if Jesus was from God. Again, going back to the unbelief being a heart issue and not a head one, he then begins to break down for them on their own terms. Having already established that a miraculous healing has taken place, the healed man brings to the Pharisees a conundrum of an argument pulled from the scriptures that they supposedly hold so dear. The label sinner here in verse 31 is not to mean just a general someone who has ever sinned. We're all considered sinners, redeemed by grace. Um, The connotation here is basically um, the same as how the Pharisees have been using it. They were calling Jesus a sinner because they thought he was a false teacher and a false prophet. So when the man says, I mean, because if God didn't listen to sinners, no one would get saved because he would never hear our prayers of salvation. So um, when he talks about uh, the label here, sinner, is basically someone of wickedness, someone who was, you know, as the Pharisees were to say, a false teacher or an imposter. And he says, if God did not listen to the prayers of sinners, then no one could get saved, or sorry, bypass that. This notion of God not answering the prayers of sinners or the wicked is pulled from many texts. Psalm 66, 18, If I had cherished my iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Psalm 109, 7, When he is tried, let him come, uh, come forth guilty. Let his prayers be counted as sin. Proverbs 15, 8, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. Proverbs 15, 29, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. So he begins his premise with, what the scriptures teach about God and listening to prayers and not answering the prayers of the wicked. He then points to the fact that this type of healing has never occurred. In verse 32, he claims, we know that from the beginning, this has never happened. What is he doing here? He's basically saying, okay, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. 
He doesn't answer the prayers of sinners. He doesn't work through the wicked in, in that way. And we know that me being healed of my blindness is not a, a um, common occurrence. We know that it wasn't you know, something that could be easily done. We have to give it supernatural um, a interference of supernatural abilities here. And, and then he comes to the logical conclusion. This was not a natural occurrence. Miracles were directly connected to God, and therefore, so was this act. So if miracles occur only from God, and God does not answer the prayers of the wicked, but the righteous, and this miracle was performed through Jesus, then we can rightly conclude that Jesus, at the very least, is not, not only a sinner, but a righteous man from God. He then concludes with, if he were not from God, he could do nothing. Truth is not hard. It is not too complicated to understand. But to the unbelievers, just as 1 Corinthians uh, 1.18 says about the cross, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, and so is everything pertaining to it. These, uh, the blind beggar meets them on their level. He says, you hold to the scriptures, you hold to the, to the law, you hold to the prophets, fine. Let's go there. Okay? They, we, we know through the scriptures that God doesn't listen to the wicked, that he doesn't answer the prayers of the wicked, that only does so in the righteous. And so, sorry. Um, we, we know that he doesn't do that. We know that he only answers the prayers of the righteous. He's, he's done this great miracle. So therefore, we conclude from your scriptures, from your point of view, that he's got to be of God. He's from God. He can't be a sinner. Again, the boldness of this man. It's like going to the Supreme Court as someone off the streets and saying, let me tell you something about your laws. You don't, you're not rightly doing it. Let me, let me show you. What does your laws teach? And then and systematically going through the, our country's laws and, and proving our Supreme Court and, and uh, the leaders of, of our laws wrong on something. And we see their natural response. Verse 34. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Here's where their hostility reaches its zenith. They started shouting. Then they, they turned to name-calling. You're his disciple. And you're a, you were born in sin. And now physical action is taken. Get them out of here. Now we see here that these Pharisees revert back. They cannot get off of their man-made notions and traditions and laws. Because they say right here, you were born in utter sin. What do they mean by this? You were born blind. What was, what was the common uh, idea back then that if you, were, you had any kind of physical ailment, either God had cursed you because of unrepented sin in your life, or maybe you were even cursed by unrepented sin in your parents' life, which was, which was not true. But they saw it as, no, 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 if you had any kind of ailment in your life, it was because of sin. 
It's like they completely missed out on, on Job Day in Sunday school. <clears throat> they, they completely bypassed it and go straight back to, well, our man-made traditions say this about you, so there. You're a, you're a, born, you're a sinner born into sin, blind. And you're going to teach us? <clears throat> Proverbs 26, 12 says, Do you see a man who is wise, wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than him. We see here that pride is the issue. Pride is always at the heart of it. It's always at the heart of unbelief is pride. Proud in their own eyes, they refuse to listen to the argument of this man that they brought. They are the ones that brought forth. And what great boldness he, he has had to them. He reminds me of Martin Luther, who was you know, brought for the Council of, of Worms and, and stood up to the Roman Catholic Church and, and was told to, to recant of, of, of all his writings, which were of Scripture. And he says, unless I'm persuaded by the Word of God, I cannot recant. In the same way, this man says, listen, you want me to call him a sinner? You want me to say that he's not of God? But something has taken place in my life. And looking at Scripture, I cannot deny. I will not recant. In fact, you say you don't know where he's from, you need to recant. It's essentially what he's saying. What a great wave of conviction that swept over me studying this text when I think of my lack of boldness and how timid I can be at times when it comes to my Savior who has made me able to see, who has brought me from death to life. And again, going back, this man was, I believe, according to the text, and as I believe we'll see next week, not yet a a full-on believer. But he knew something of Jesus. And it was more than he was my healer. Because if Jesus was nothing more to this man than a healer, well, his healing's already taken place. He could be done with him and say, yeah, he probably is a sinner. I don't know. I just know I got my sight, and that's all I care about. Refusing to back down. This man uh, understood the truth concerning Christ. And takes a stand against these religious elite. They cast them out. Now there's some debate at what, what this means of casting out. Some say that all it was was that um, they threw him out of the temple. Um, because in order to be, to be excommunicated and, and in order to be unsynagogued, as they say, uh, there had to be a, a, a meeting, a formal meeting with the Sanhedrin that they would make this claim. Um, but... I believe that it didn't mean he was on synagogue just because we look back at the fear that his parents had. Um, if they had no fear of being on synagogue or just being thrown out, why wouldn't they say, like, listen, man, that is our son. Uh, yeah, he was born blind, and it was this Jesus. He says it was Jesus. You know, but they had a fear because they feared the religious leaders because anyone even hinting at the fact that Jesus was more than a false teacher would get you excommunicated and on synagogue. And um, 
Again, we'll see in the next verse, next, um, in the next verse of this chapter, verse 35, that Jesus hears of him being cast out. So obviously this was a big deal. If he was just thrown out of the synagogue and said, get out of here, and they release him, it wouldn't be a, a perpetual thing that's been recirculating and, and it finally got back to Jesus. So I do believe that he was excommunicated. I do believe he was unsynagogued um, and, and thrown out. Um, and this is a big deal. To be unsynagogued, to be excommunicated, wasn't mean, didn't mean like they just looked down upon you. It means, I mean, there were three different levels of excommunication. Um, but the worst being, you could not go to the temple. You could not worship. You could not bring your sacrifice. You weren't allowed to deal with others and, and, uh, and trading with other Jews. You weren't allowed to. You were treated basically as a leper. You had to be away from them. You, had to, um, you were excommunicated from the community. And I thought to myself, man, well, what does this guy care? That's all he's ever known. But then I thought to myself also, man, when he was healed, he probably, those were the things that were most likely running through his mind. I finally get to be an active member of society. I, I can go get a job now. I can earn my way. I don't have to beg anymore. I can have dinner with someone because they don't think I'm a sinner and I'm going to infect them and curse them by walking in their homes. I can go to the temple and, and worship God, finally. And now that's all gone. But I think after this, he probably wasn't all that, all that sad about being excommunicated. <clears throat> now, after, after being excommunicated, after being thrown out, it made me think of my last, uh, my last point. Being bold for Christ should cause and will cause division. And we should not be surprised about this. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Matthew 10, 34. These are Jesus' words. Somewhere in the church, we were taught that unity is the primary goal of the believer, even if it's at the cost of truth. The truth is offensive to an unbelieving world, and we should expect no less. But never has a church been in need of such boldness than it is right now. If you would be bold for Christ, you must also be prepared for it to cause great and many divisions in your life. But know this, God will always divide you on the side that is in your best interest. Take, for instance, this man. If his bold statement of Christ did not divide him, he would be brought in to this false religion. He would have been uh, gone right into the, the false man-made laws to follow. We see in this text who is truly blind. Even though I may not feel like it at the time, God will always divide you on the side that is in your best interest. 
Division will come, but you, O child of God, will always be divided on the side that preserves you for God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. In closing, again, this text, uh, we've looked at how preconceived notions can uh, sway us from, from rightly proclaiming God's truth. What are some maybe uh, things that you were convicted on or some things that you need to repent of that don't line up with Scripture? Some preconceived notions about others or, or things, and, and maybe it's even about yourself. I don't know how many times I hear people say, I can't become a believer. I can't go to church because of the way this past sins in my life. I don't think God could love me. I don't think God can forgive me of these things that I've done. That's a false preconceived notion that does not line up with Scripture. Get rid of it. Maybe it is fear of, of division Fear of being bold because of what it would divide you from. Family, friends. Matthew 10, 28 talks about, Do not fear man who can kill the body but not touch the soul, but fear God who can kill both body and soul in hell. Maybe it is unbelief. Hopefully everyone here is a believer, but I never assume so. Maybe it is pride in your heart that is keeping you from Believing and forgiving your life fully to Christ. Proverbs says, Whoever is proud in his heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. But to the humble he gives favor. Or maybe it's boldness that you lack like me. In fact, I'm going to rephrase that because I bet if I were to go on many of your guys' Facebooks, I could see that you have plenty of boldness. You have no problem being loud about things. Whether it's uh, your personal hobbies, favorite cars, political views, favorite sports teams. You have no problem being loud and boisterous for these things. You have no problem standing up and being bold for these things, being bold for your candidate, for your political views. But when it comes to Christ and the word of God, well, maybe your way is your way, my way is my way. I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. May we be convicted of the boldness of this blind beggar who had no uh, religious background, who was... was just a humble servant that was, had an amazing experience with Christ. He was convicted that Christ was of God. And, and though I was blind, now I see. And as we join and go into communion together, 
we need no further reason to be bold than what is represented on that table. We have all the inspiration to be bold right there on that table. The broken body, the shed blood, not for, not for you who were um, begging to be saved, but you who were his enemy. We have all the inspiration we need there to be bold for Christ. And I don't know what it is about these doors, but it seems like when we walk out of them, something happens where just everything we, we're feeling right now just gets scraped out of our minds and we just leave it there and, and continue on in our day. But we live in a darkened, depraved time that people desperately need the light. And though they may hate the light because it reveals the darkness within them, we need to be light and boldly stand and proclaim Christ.